Welcome to a third episode of No Barriers on the Thoroughbred Network podcast. This week, I'm joined by English marketing executive Gemma Cutting. Since watching the Firelight movie at 12 years old, Gemma has always had a great love for horse racing. The stories, the race colours, and the sporting greats hugely inspired Gemma and led her on a thoroughbred racing career path. So far, Gemma has studied journalism, ridden track work, worked for race clubs, sky racing, and is currently a marketing executive at one of Australia's biggest thoroughbred sale houses. She has worked incredibly hard and her sheer passion and drive for the industry is infectious. I love listening to Gemma's experiences. They give a real insight to her industry and I find it hugely inspirational. Gemma didn't come from a racing family and her knowledge was all researched through books, race replays and sheer hard work. I hope you enjoy Gemma's story as much as I did. All righty. I'm so keen to introduce one of my friends, but someone who's been within the industry and held some really interesting roles, actually. Thank you for joining me, Gemma Cutting. Thank you, Hayley. I feel <laughs> like, um, yeah, uh, you've mentioned that we're friends, so hopefully <laughs> I'm here for a reason and not just because of that. <laughs> Charity. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I just, um, you've held some, some roles that maybe people don't always associate with racing. I think a lot of people, when they think of horse racing, um, even could be trainers or jockeys, but the industry is so much more than that. Um, and I sort of wanted to talk to a collective of people who've done, who've done lots of different roles, but and and not not really have a specific pathway. Like things things just happen in this industry, and you and you just get there, whether it's hard work or the right place at the right time, and so. I wanted to sort of sit down and sort of nut that out with you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's I work at Inglis now um, in a role of marketing executive, which sounds really impressive, but I, I work in the marketing team, which I love, and it's definitely not where I thought I would have ended up when I first set out to work in the industry. It's um, it's come in a way of, a roundabout way of working hard and I aimed for another role in TV and media, but I've been able to use all that I um, learned in the years I worked at, um, at Sky Racing, which we'll discuss in my current role. And I've kind of, um, Sebastian Hutch, who's been my manager here, we've, we've kind of formed a role that didn't exist in a way, like marketing exists, but we've um, created our own broadcast, for an example, the last 12 months here at Inglis where we broadcast our own sales in-house and I guess the skills I had from production at Sky were basically used and that's how we've come to uh, have it this year. <laughs> we've done all our sales in big marquees. It's been so much fun and it's um, it's kind of, yeah, all those all those years I worked hard and while it didn't might, might not have worked out the way I thought it would um, in terms of being a Channel 7 uh, broadcaster <laughs> was the dream, it's, um, it's something I don't regret and I've ended up somewhere, again, that I wouldn't have thought about when I was uh, 12 years old looking to work in racing and it's an example of yeah you can just find a job that suits you through networking and working hard and I think things opportunities present themselves yeah so you know where was your first where did you first think that you might actually be interested in racing like when did you first see racing and and want to be a part of that uh the farlight movie which i have been (laughs) known to mention a few times to people over the years that was literally the um starting point of this whole thing the window to the world of racing (laughs) i always loved horses and it was something that my mum mum loved horses she had a couple of horses growing up but just went you know bareback riding at the beach in newcastle um in new south wales 
And she encouraged the uh, horse love. You know, look, Gemma, there's a horse. And we went on a couple of trail rides when I was young. And uh, she had known that I would end up wanting to have my own horse, compete, end up working in racing. I'm sure well, she has said she regrets it a little bit, especially the financial, uh, you know, how Burden. much it costs to have a horse. And I have one in Sydney. Um, and I wanted to take it more than just trail riding. But anyway, so I, like a lot of young girls, I loved horses. And we lived um, in a town called Yapoon up in central Queensland. It's a coastal town near Rockhampton. But it's very much where country meets the sea. It's a small town on the beach, but a lot of land and we had acreage. And so when we moved there when I was about eight years old, I made mum promise that we would get a horse. And we did eventually. I had my, got my first one at age of 12, a stock horse <laughs> called Samson. Couldn't jump to save his life. He was so athletic. He was a great bomb-proof horse, though. Had a lot of fun and rode a lot as a kid. And um, it would have been April 2000 when I was 12 years old that I first hired out the Firelight movie. I thought I'd seen all the horse movies there was to see <laughs> and um, found this one. I think it would have been Video Easy or Civic Video or something in town. And we rented it out. I watched it. It was the old VHS. And... I just loved it. We hired it out so many times. I actually broke the tape right near the end where Violet wins the Agua Caliente handicap. It used to stop and auto rewind. It was from me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what I did to it. But anyway, so that was the beginning. And I was a, an obsessive type of girl where I love, and I still do, I love researching things that are really interesting or are new. And I just started reading everything about Violet. It was kind of when Google was in its formative years. I'm showing my age. It wasn't, we didn't really have, we only just got a computer that year. And so it was all books. And I had a couple of un uncles that loved racing and punting. So they lent me, lent me their books and I started building a collection of books. I also loved um, taping shows off TV. It was, you know, when you're growing up and you realize you can tape things and watch them back. So I think it would have been a week or so after I watched the Firelight movie. It was Golden Slipper Day at Rose Hill. I knew nothing other than what I'd watching the Firelight movie about racing <laughs> um, and I decided to watch it. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could record this on Channel 9 and watch it back and then I'd watch the horse that won and see what it does in the race. Anyway, long story short, I taped Golden Slipper Day 2000, Belle du Jour won the slipper. Um, the week after Fairway won the derby and uh, Sunline got beaten by Over in the Doncaster. <laughs> Tie the Knot won the Mercedes Classic. It was the best. If I could have chosen the best race to start with, it was Belle du Jour's Golden Slipper. It was such a cool win, which comes from last. And that began this obsession with racing, researching everything. I taped every race day on national TV, you know, Channel 9, Channel 7, Channel 10, had the Melbourne <laughs> Cup back then. And I still have those VHS tapes. I taped for, this is, I sound ridiculous, 10 years. And wow. when I couldn't, I would ask my father or my nana too, who had um who had the day spent at home, and I'd give them very strict instructions. I would like mounting yard races five, six, seven, post race interviews, no fashion, <laughs> um, and I don't need mounting yard for races one, two, and three, and don't worry about taping race ten. Like it's <laughs> so silly. I, anyway, I was so obsessed, and I'd always loved English and writing and reading, and I was very much and I love talking clearly, as you'll discover on this podcast. <laughs> so my mum had always suggested, "Oh, you should do journalism. You know, great. You love talking. You can combine the journalism love. Why don't you combine it with racing?" And that was the idea from about twelve, thirteen, that I would go into a racing media career, and I was literally blinkers on. That was what I was going to do. Um, I went to a high school in Yapoon called Sinertialist College. The principal's husband, I think, was the chairman of the board of Rocky Captain oh, wow. Jockey Club. So all, it was a small school. All the teachers knew Gemma loves horse racing. All my friends knew 
that Gemma loved. It was a very bizarre love for a girl that loved horses and went to pony club but had no family involvement. There were no connections at all. Dad loved racing, so he'd watch the racing with me and watch the old Kingston Town replays I'd watch over and over again and comment on them because he was alive to see them. Um, <laughs> and so my parents were very encouraging. Um, they helped me, you know, encouraged me through high school and to basically get a journalism degree. That was the goal. And for people who have gone to university, you realise that all the things I tell you in high school that oh, you need to do this to get into the degree you want to do. Well, I missed out by one point to get into journalism and I just did another year of an arts degree and did the same subjects and um, I got I did the journalism degree in the end and that's, yeah, that's the beginning, Haley. That's the lo- <laughs> beginning, that's the long, long-winded version of how I got into racing. It was just the Firelight movie and then watching the racing on TV. And back then, it was just before Francesca Camani. It was a few years before she yep. came on to Channel 7. So I started with Kenny Callender, Simon O'Donnell, Simon Marshall on The Pony, and that was basically it, like a very male-dominated broadcast. Jenny Chapman did Channel 10 with Peter Donegan. Yeah. But um, that was, you know, for me it's an example that I definitely think it's great we have women involved now more and more in that side of the business. But I fell into it not because of just the people broadcasting. It was the stories they told of the horses. Those yep. colour stories were so much part of making me love racing and <laughs> researching everything. I have to ask, what did you do with all the tapes? Do you still They're have still them? there under the bed in your poon um, in a filing cabinet. Well, there's a few filing cabinets <laughs> and others are kept in big plastic containers. Um, I'm sad to say some of them look like they're pretty mouldy and I think some of them might not be salvageable, but I have everything, yeah, everything. I even taped news reports on TV the night, you know, Maccabi Diva wins her third Melbourne Cup. I would have, I'd tape the news that night to just get all the news clippings and snippets. And I have newspaper clippings as well um, at home. I used to always collect the Melbourne Cup lift out. So mum always <laughs> says, what are we going to do with all this stuff, Gemma? I can't keep it. I'll be moving house one day. So yes, I'll deal with it when that happens. But I think it's so They're magical. Collectibles. <laughs> you, I, I'm, I'm telling you, the amount of people that will be contacting you just for footage. I have a lot of stuff. No longer around that you have under your bed. Well, maybe. <laughs> I did have a, an uncle gave me a tape called Stallions of 86. I don't know any, of anyone else that has that, but it's. I think it was, you know, it was a very young John Massara uh, Transmedia Park was operating. Uh, it's Ranch's first season at Stud, I think, Um it's a little bit sort of above my head, some of the stallions on it. Grosvenor in New Zealand, they went to everywhere in Australasia. They showcased all the stallions. So That's it's unreal. an incredible amount of footage on that tape, which I think I lent to Vicky Leonard and she hasn't returned it yet. Right. So, Vicky, I'm <laughs> coming for you. Do not, do not forget. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so honestly, from a very clear age, you're here. You're, you're in it. You love yeah, it. Yeah. There's just there's something about it that that attracts it to you. So it was really only natural that you sort of finding your first couple of jobs at a racetrack. It was. Um, I went to university and I lived on campus at Cromwell College in Brisbane. I went to QUT. And um, to be honest, I struggled with my degree because, as you know, at university or people who go, you're very much left to your own devices. So there was a lot of, um, you know, <laughs> university partying and having a good time and studies were hard to motivate myself for. But I still... Yeah, it was hard to – I struggled a little bit at uni and it was hard to keep motivated. And at one point my mum actually said, why don't you come home to your poon? You know, um, maybe Brisbane, maybe the city life, you're struggling a little bit. But I was so sure that if I stopped university and took a break that I would never go back because I do procrastinate. 
and <laughs> things that worry me I try to put off. So I stayed involved. But in my first year of uni, I um, went to the Queensland Racing Awards night with a guy that I went to uni or college with. I lived on campus and I was just friendly with him and he knew I loved racing. And it's a very weird love for, you know, just an 18-year-old <laughs> who doesn't have any involvement. And um, he asked, do you want to come to the I work at Doombin one day a week in finance and I have that job because my brother did it before me and they were doing <laughs> accountancy degrees and he said, you should just come along. So I did and Larry Olson, I think, was inducted into the Queensland Hall of Fame that night and the Mel- they played his Kenzai Melbourne Cup win and me just being an embarrassing, like it's so embarrassing, I'm so cringe <laughs> to think of this, um, like started commentating the with the TV, with the replay his last 200 meters of Kenzai's <laughs> Melbourne Cup, and so my, this guy's boss, uh, Michael Smith, his name was was looking at me like, oh my gosh, strange girl. He he, he kind of loved it because he's a punter. He's like, you're that's amazing, and I was looking back, I think how embarrassing. Anyway, I said I'd love a job. I'd love to get a job, and he said, oh, you know, well come and talk to me another time. So I did. I borrowed a car. I went out to Doombin and I um, asked to see Michael Smith and he gave me a job one day a week in finance. I was absolutely hopeless at invoicing and I still <laughs> don't even understand what I, I had no idea what I was doing. Like it's <laughs> Math is just not my thing. And um, I was pretty useless. But anyway, I think just it was great to work there and I ended up in the judges box um, on race days. It was kind of the finance person's role to take the photo finish. I think that was because Michael loved racing. So I did that. And I did that for quite a few years. I worked at Doombin all the way through um, the BTC then formed. And so I didn't work in finance after that, thank God. But um, <laughs> I still did the photo finish. And then, yeah, I um, approached Sean Dwyer um, via a phone call about getting a job in a state, like just a stable hand job. Petrified. Um, had no, like I'd ridden horses at Pony Club, but I'm not, had no idea about saddling in terms of race pads and anything. And so he um, he gave me a job. Like he was so nice. A couple <laughs> of days a week and I'd just come for the morning and I still see Sean now and he remembers me, I think, because I was just always, you know, I'm going to work in racing TV and I'm, I'm doing this because I don't want to be someone who just is book savvy and researched and stats and I can talk about who won the Melbourne Cup in 1986. <laughs> I mean, that's great, but that doesn't really help you. So, yeah, I just wanted to get the stable hand job in and I did that. And then when he left for Bendigo, I worked for um, a trainer called Tony Crane, who at that time was in the infield at Eagle Farm, did that a few days a week. So um, it was really great because it gave me an idea of um, the whole other side. It's not just what's on TV and the group one days. It's the day-to-day grind of yeah. working horses and the characters. Yeah, there's, it's an, it was amazing. Like Mel Shoemaker worked um, at a stable and Mel Shoemaker was outed back in the 50s, I think it was, for pulling the leg of a jockey on Blue Era in the uh, derby. Yeah. And so he was one of the guys getting around in a pair of track pants, old bloke, like bow leg. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I was like, that's Mel Shoemaker. And he was so nice. I, he, I did a university <laughs> interview with him for my degree. So, yeah, like I, was, I went back to my high school and did a speech a few years ago about careers and what, your path and it cannot always be clear because it's just not to <laughs> – just like I think, you know, it's such a weird thing for a young girl to be so determined that the <laughs> teacher still remembered me at high school and I never go to school Melbourne Cup Day. So <laughs> like, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it because I talked it up so much as a 17 and 18-year-old. I'm glad I didn't just not fizzle get out. there and fizzle yeah. out, yeah, and just give up. So It's pretty um, – she didn't go to school Melbourne Cup Days. Not in high school, no, no. Once I got obsessed <laughs> at age of seven, um, yeah. And I got so embarrassing. I made um, Go Maccabi Diva 
paper badges for um, teachers in I was in grade 12 so <laughs> 17 and god love them my teachers wore them and I didn't go to school but I, I came in the morning to give them out and my dad wore one to work <laughs> I was so what obsessed what were you made from pardon what were you made piece from? of paper oh like I printed out off the computer with her colors and stuff on it because I wanted her to win a third Melbourne Cup. This is so embarrassing. But anyway, like I was so obsessed. I can't I can't tell you. So um, obsessed. I'm probably not as obsessed as I was then, but when you're young, you can absorb all those facts and you don't have the pressures of your adult life to Yeah. Uh, and, well, but you're looking in front of you, aren't you? You're looking where you could possibly go. Yeah. And big for dreams. You, big dreams. But like ra- racing industry, I don't know, it's um some of it is evolved around luck. But there's so many opportunities there, which which you wanted to seek you just out. Have to, you just have to want to do it. Um, like I was very scared going to track work when Tony Crane rang me up and asked me to go to Eagle Farm. I did like it was really intimidating walking in on my first morning and still not feeling that confident with anything I was doing. I never strapped a horse or anything, you know. It was so that was really scary. I don't know how I did it, but you know, just I was so keen and it hard work doesn't always pay off because sometimes luck in life goes against you but I feel like for me it was very much just very working hard making sure people know that I was keen and I am a hard worker and I think that goes a long way because they're willing to help you and mentor you and also I guess promote you to to someone else that could eventually be your next job yeah that's absolutely. it so where did we go from here very complex. Try not to talk too much. But anyway, so I was working at Eagle Farm. Um, I also got a job at um, Radio TAB or Radio Tab. It's like the Sky Sports Radio of Brisbane or Queensland. So I got a job there, um, just casual, but I did production and radio, learned how to switch. And then they started getting me to do some toad announcing. So they'd have a main announcer coordinating where we're going next. And then they crossed to the toad announcer for the prices. So number one, you just was really good and, and Mercedes um, Howard I think her name was at the time since married she was the only female announcer on the station and I was the second one to do it and it was um, an amazing opportunity I, I, I think I took it for granted a little bit at the time but I learned a lot of the production skills that I ended up using when I went to Sky just in terms of lining up interviews um, audio editing a little yeah. bit so I did that while I did my degree at this point I'd gone part-time to stay in the degree but not but not being like, out. yeah, just burn out with it and be able to do all these jobs. Still did the photo finish at Doombin. <laughs> and then in my final year of university, um, I ended up doing some work experience at Sky Racing up in um, Queensland. So at Eagle Farm, I'd go to the track with Larry Olsen, Alan Thomas and Bernie Cooper had just started. Yep. And um, I had a lovely mentor, Christian Letford, who um, worked at Sky and he worked up there in Brisbane. Anyway, he talked me up to the Sky crew in Sydney and taught me the ropes of on-course production a little bit, you know, lining up again, interviews, um, just the things that you don't see behind the scenes. And I really do have him to thank to getting the job at Sky. So they offered me a job, I think, six months out from my end of degree. So I think middle of 2010, I think it was. And I already had a job if I wanted it, if I wanted to go to Sydney. And um, so, yeah, some days I did track work at Tony Cranes and I'd leave early to do um, I didn't do afternoon shifts. I'd go to the races at Eagle Farm or Doombin to do the photo finish. <laughs> and then I'd have a night shift occasionally at the radio station where I'd ma- be just doing night line producing. 
And I would finish at, say, 1am and get back up and go to work at 4. It didn't happen very often, but there were times that, um, yeah, they all, all three jobs clashed in the day, but often two did. So. That is, um, that's dedication. Yeah, I just loved it though. And I, I was so sure that it would happen for me, like it would, and it did, like to be offered the job at Sky, I, I almost didn't go because it, to me to leave Brisbane, which was a second home with a lot of family there, and move to Sydney where I knew absolutely no one. <laughs> um, was so scary. It was really scary. I, I, my mum made me go. Basically, she just said it was. <laughs> I was going to say you must have been so nervous. I was. I mean, I, my one regret, I think, looking back, is that I didn't travel um, like a lot of my peers did. I think because I was so, I knew what I wanted to do so clearly. So it was just school, university, dream job, which yeah. was Sky at the time. So there was no time to travel. It wasn't really a priority. I wish I had because I haven't traveled a lot. And I, knowing that I would end up at Inglis if I could go back, perhaps it would have been great to go and work on a few studs and use that as a way of traveling around yep. Australia and, you know, maybe Europe or America. That would have been a great experience to have in my current role, but I didn't know that at the time and I still don't regret anything that I did. So you accepted the role at Sky. So what was, what was your position? It was, um, I think I was just junior producer or just producer. So I w- came on, um, I think, with the idea that I potentially would be an on-air presenter in time, but it was production. My first job was actually producing Andrew Bensley's news. Um, he'd finish radio and then do a segment on each of the three channels. Yeah. And uh, I felt really bad for him because I took over from a producer who'd been there but only started a few months before me. So he literally had all the, like basically the lackeys or the newbies <laughs> producing his news. And he was so kind. I'm still Count Andrew uh, Bensley as a mentor and still friends with him now. He was um, very generous considering he would have had to put up with people learning how to do anything <laughs> in TV. But it was it was great. So it was product producer. Just um, Sky World had rebranded. Um, that was before it was central. And so I'd line produce to go and do the race day basically, line up the hosts and sit behind the director and yeah, it's great. Like it's a whole, again, a whole new world in TV yeah. that um, and so many skills. I, I didn't realise until I came here and used some of the skills and what I do now that I just observed or you pick up just over the years, even if you didn't do them yourself. Yep. So, yeah, I was a producer and I did Bread to Win um, for four years. That was, that's the whole next story. But, yeah, so I did that and it was great. I was there at Sky for six and a half years, so... It was um it was a wonderful time in my life. I met a lot of people. In fact, met my fiance at Sky Racing. <laughs> I was the producer. He was the director's assistant at the time. We were doing um I think we were doing the Derby at Epsom coverage, and <laughs> we're both on night shifts, and that's how we got to know each other. <laughs> and yeah, so Dean, he's also very heavily. He also loves racing. Yep. This this household of yours must be racing mad. Uh, yeah, so my sister has an uncanny knack for knowing Melbourne Cup winners and she's not that interested in racing, but <laughs> she knows more than the average person thanks to watching uh, race replays <laughs> and ad breaks uh, growing up. Um, yeah, Dean he works at HQ Insurance and he was at Sky for I think around a similar time to me. Yep. And he ended up as a director and his parents are very involved in racing as owners and his dad's been on a couple of boards and it's, it's great. Like I think they thought... Um, it was wonderful that we'd met each other because yeah. we have that in common, as you know, with you and Dave as well. It, you live and breathe it so much. It's wonderful to have the um, that pastime of going to the races just socially yeah. and watching the sport together. God, it was a lifesaver in lockdown because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> so at least both of us loved watching the same sport. Well, yeah, it is hard, you know, like it's, it's, it's such a niche. It's not a niche market as such, but 
you know, there's there's so many different roles people take in racing, whether it be a participant or just a punter or just someone that loves it. But I think it's so unique that um, having someone in your life that also, also understands that. It's very true. And, and you know, helps. it's also a point, though, his love, like he loves punting and he loves racing. He, he likes horses, but he rode as a kid and he's will not ride a horse. There's no interest. He'll come and watch me jump at a show occasionally, <laughs> but doesn't find it overly interesting. Um, and, it, in fact, it's stressful for him because I take my stresses out on him, poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so he doesn't like, you know, so it's a whole different love. It's a different love of racing. He loves sport, loves sport, loves football and golf, whereas I love the horse side of it and I love the colour stories. I'm not really a big punter. Like I'll have, I'll have a few bets, but it's not a... I'm happy to watch a whole race day and not have a bet. It's all about the the um, glory of the sport, I guess, or the heroes of that are the horses and the participants. Yeah. So while you were at Sky, you then you sort of moved into Bread to Win. So explain to us what was Bread to Win when it first came out. Well, it was a breeding show that had been going for quite a while. Brendan Parnell had started it in a, a guy called Gus Rowland or Angus Rowland who now does um, a TDN podcast. He was producing it. He'd grown up in, in a family that, um, his father was a hobby breeder. So it's completely different to me. He was moving up in the ranks at Sky and they needed someone to take over the show. Line producing didn't really suit me. Like I'm not analytical. I wasn't, I was terrible on Sky 1 trying to make a decision if we're going to throw that Kembla Grange to Sky 2. That, that was just not, I was very much more suited to anything creative, arty, music, slow-mo shots, all that stuff really appealed to me. So when he was leaving to move up uh, into management, I said, oh, kind of interested in doing bread to win if you think you know you want to put me forward I, I think it would suit me but I had no idea about the breeding industry I really didn't like I knew who Dane Hill was and I knew that Octagonal had sired Lonroe but that was basically like scarily the extent of my knowledge and to take over and he, he I therefore got the role but he and he thought I was suitable because I was able to write um do interviews and I loved horses so the breeding thing you can you can learn a lot of that and so I read a lot of books because it's very daunting to go on to Coolmore Start or Arrowfield Start and interview um, like a John Massara or those type of people and know you are completely wanting in knowledge and I didn't want to be viewed as a, a young female 24 I think I was that's just uh, she's just doing it because she's a girl and doesn't know her stuff so I was very forthright in that I was learning and was keen I just tried not to be so self-conscious that people will think I'm just an idiot and only there for, you know, again, being a young girl. Um, And Gus was so knowledgeable. He's he's so encyclopedic in what he can recall. Um, It was always going to be hard to take over from someone like him. I don't think I I was definitely not as good as he was in the role, but it was um, a whole new world, like breeding industry. Uh, It's a niche within a niche that he used to call it, and it so is. You love racing, but the whole breeding side is (laughs) <laughs> it's another like all these studs, stallions, mares, how it works, the people it employs, um, the sales. I loved going to the sales. That was so good going to Easter. So enjoyable. The um, I guess like the I love a bit of drama. Um, so I loved the thrill and that atmosphere <laughs> and it's great. And, yeah, so I did that four years and that was if I hadn't have done that show and if Gus hadn't been so willing to impart as much knowledge onto me as possible – um, I wouldn't be here at Inglis. I, I don't know where I would be actually. I was ready to leave. I did a year of big sports breakfast radio announcing, which I loved, but I'd been at Sky six and a half years. I was kind of getting to the end of, you know, where I, I didn't know where I wanted to go after that. Um, and I was a bit torn with 
I guess, making a choice from TV. I did some pr- TV presenting there, but I, I sort of felt like I wasn't going to, well, I wasn't going to get to the Channel 7 dream at that point that I'd always wanted. And I was okay with that. So I, I'd come to peace with that kind of <laughs> development in a way. Yeah. yeah. But that, you know, the bread to win was great. And I have to say that for all those people that I had to interview or deal with on bread to win, they were nothing but, um, lovely, I guess. And so um, they just weren't judgmental and they didn't make me feel insignificant or inferior. I didn't feel self-conscious. Um, it's funny, like Sebastian, who I work with here, I mean, I interviewed him a number of times at Cornwall and n- none of them ever made me feel, none of the studs made me feel like I was um, a bit silly or stupid. I just kind of was keen to learn. So it was wonderful because if that had happened and if I had felt that way, especially with my personality, it would have probably knocked me so much for confidence. Yeah. I wouldn't have wanted to pursue anything in that um, down that pathway. Yeah. So you've sort of come to that and now there's a new um, opportunity with one of the biggest auction houses in Australia um, where we sell well, basically, Inglis here offers the best of the best that there is to be offered. So what was the role that you were offered here? I like that, the best of the best. I'm glad you got that tagline <laughs> there. <laughs> well, I was offered a role in Inglis Digital, which at the time, um, it was mid-2017. They only just launched in May 2017. And Gab Nutt had been in the role and she was moving overseas and um, to travel and to work over at TATS. So I was um, I was offered the job and I... <laughs> I don't know if I should say this. I went to Scone Cup that year and we all know Scone Cup's a great, <laughs> great experience. Um, the marquee's so much fun. And so I'd gotten to know Peter Fitzgerald a little bit that year at the Easter sale. And so we were chatting and um, like I know it was later in the day. So I'd had a, we'd had a few drinks and I said, oh, look, just not sure what I want to do now, but I, I think I'm, I think I'm sort of finished with like I think I'm looking for something else and Inglis seemed like such a fun place to work and everyone seems so great. You know, I'd kind of be, if there was a job going with you in media somewhere there, so Fitzy, wealth of information that he is, you know, as all the scoops went back to Inglis and um, knew that Gab was leaving and Tanita was leaving as well and she did the um, the TV work that the sales yep. that Harrington Patterson did. So they were looking to fill that and so that was basically what, yeah, I didn't even really have a formal interview. None of the roles I've had to date, I um, have had a formal interview for. It's just, yeah, word of mouth and getting to know people. And I guess I didn't know how well a fit I was, a good a fit I was for English Digital, but it's worked out really well. I mean, it's amazing that platform. We my first sale August twenty seventeen, which is when I started. Top lot was twenty seven and a half thousand dollars and we've this year had you know fun start sell for 2.7 and many mares over 1 million it's amazing to think that that's where it started and I can't say it's had anything to do with me but um it's it's been been a a collective effort of the whole team and also the changing of the world a little bit with um things online and so yeah I was working there and um and then about a year ago I've been doing the tv work for Inglis in-house with all our social media um snippets that we do and there's so much fun and then with COVID last year in 2020, we had to broadcast our Easter sale virtually, which was, um, well, it was a world first. Like it was amazing to see Jonathan Darcy and Chris Russell auction to an empty room, horses on the farm on video. So we had to do, wanted to do a commentary t- stream to basically kind of Pull make out something out of it. So we had Caroline Cece come in and host and 
when we did that, we realised, wow, we could do this, you know, not at as large a scale as the TV networks have, but we could develop something in-house. Then we have control of our own um, product. And from there, that's kind of like, again, it was, it just so happened that I have had experience in production and TV that it was able to be done. And uh, again, we had so many people involved, like Dean here, who's our IT specialist. If we hadn't had him, it wouldn't have happened. But again, like all the years of learning things have been for for something, even though the TV (laughs) thing didn't quite work out, it was not meant to be. And this was, and all those years working hard were meant for something. And so then um, I, ba- I moved into the main Inglis marketing team um, about a year ago. So in this role of marketing executive, which has been so much fun and oh, with Jess and Lily and Fitzy and Elise and Sebastian and some, um, yeah, it's, I haven't looked back. It's been a wonderful 12 months with doing this broadcast that we're getting more and more developed with and um, going out onto inspections and filming. I mean, I'm very amateur. I do a little bit of filming and um, a little bit of editing. And those are things I'm sort of self-taught in from observing Bread to Win for so many years. And working with cameramen, you pick up um, a lot of things you don't realise just from, um, yeah, observation, listening, watching. Um, And, yeah, so all that's really painted the way, (laughs) paved the way for me. I hope to be good in my job now. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) So marketing is quite a a big word, but describe what marketing is for a sale house. Right. Really put me on the spot here. It's <laughs> it's a lot bigger, th- I think, than people realise. There's a lot of thought and you're always looking ahead. Um, you can't really be reactive. So it's kind of hard to put into words, but for an auction house, you're always um, you're planning what your, I guess, your message is going to be. And for us, it's very simple. It's the success of our graduates, um, for those who want to buy from our sale, and for vendors, it's the success you have in the ring and how much work that Inglis as a company do for you to promote your horses and get the buyers here on sites. It's kind of split into two, the vendors and the buyers. You're working for both, but we're predominantly we're working for the vendors. We're promoting their horses, making sure their horses sell well and that they go into great homes, great stables, and then we cheer them on as graduates. Sorry to interrupt this episode, but could you do me a favour? And if you enjoy this podcast, could you please rate and review our content on your favourite podcast platform so we can grow and be easily found by like-minded people like yourself? Thanks. Back to the episode. So it's a lot of, um, that's a lot of the Bloodstock team's role in, in communicating with the vendors and buyers, but with us, it's promoting those those parts of it. So for the vendors, we start doing um, our vendor preview stories, which have kind of been a development we've over the last couple of years. We're doing more and more and more in depth. So we'll um, profile some vendors, their drafts, but also it's a lot more interesting to find a story within those farms or people. And you get so many more eyes onto those, um, I guess, the farms or those subjects if they're interesting because, I mean, we're always promoting within our own bubble. But it is really cool when we do a a story on an orphan foal leading into the Easter sale that went massive on, we call it massive on social media, where it just had a lot more eyeballs on it than just the people that are already involved because it was, you know, everyone loves a foal and that sort of thing. And that's, it's it's a success when that happens. Yeah. Again, like it's sort of hard to put into words, but we're always promoting ahead, promoting the sales, making sure that they're as strong as they can be. 
And then, uh, you know, we have great arsenal then for the next lot of sales when they are so successful. Everything, it's events, um, the social part of it, which Lily France looks looks after, um, facts, we've got to do a lot of research so we were promoting the right thing, um, comparing to other years. Um, Jess, who's the marketing manager, does a lot of the, she does the, she's working on the English magazine at the moment, which takes a long time collating stories. It, it's There's so much involved, you don't realise it, because I didn't really know what marketing or, or how it worked when I came across either. Just kind of learn it as you go. And I think to everyone, marketing can be something different. I do a lot of the um, the video content, so that's kind of my little role. Yeah. But um, it's a whole broad picture. We have a weekly marketing meeting which is really important where we're all at and we all throw ideas into the mix. So <laughs> it's it's great. And, yeah, Fitzy obviously looks after a lot of the PR aspect of um, of the company too. So we've loved horses from quite a young age. You've been involved within the industry, whether it be in track work, whether it be at the radio, whether it be at the race courses. But you've also got, as much as we have Dean in her life, we also have another man in your <laughs> life. Which is he's grey, has four legs, and he was it was quite a he was a pretty good racehorse at one point. He was not too bad, so Gwyn. Yeah, he's um claim to fame. He's Chad Schofield's very first I think he was his first ride in a race and his first winner on Newcastle Cup Day. Yeah, he's lovely. Dean, I mean, he's probably right. He's number number one. <laughs> Dean's a, like distant second. Um he's a wonderful uh, he's fifteen now, he's a great horse. He's the best horse I've ever had. I had a, quite a few growing up just um, you know, Pony club horses, and uh, most of them dumped me one way or another. <laughs> and um, he's just, and I'll never have one as good as him. He's so quiet, such a talented jumper. It's a real shame that I've just, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I never competed to a big level as a kid. So for me to jump a meter ten, it's the first time I'm doing it. So I've learned a lot with him. But I, with full time work, it's really hard to get a, a clear run, as you know yourself. Um, so I'll get going quite well, and then you know we'll have Easter or something, and I don't ride for a few weeks and. But he he will never get to the heights he should. Like he could go three star. He's that talented. But he he's he doesn't know that. He's quite content. He's uh, a David Payne uh, trained horse, and a lot of David Payne horses um, end up in Terry Hills, where I've got Seguin. Um, a lot of my friends, because I think I don't know if it's a David thing, but they all are so <laughs> quiet and they're so well handled. And I think that's the case with I guess so many race horses, especially ones that have raced in the city and are so well travelled. They um they've seen everything, and John Cordina, the owner, gave him to me. Um, he's a family friend of Dean's parents, and I was at the races with him one day, um, quite a, about eight years ago now. And he said, "Oh, I was like, oh, what are you doing with Diamond Jim when he finishes?" I don't know why I thought I'd be getting a horse, but anyway, <laughs> this is the spiral financially <laughs> that my mum talks about. He goes, "Oh, why are you thinking of?" getting a horse I said oh maybe and he goes oh you can have Sir Gwyn if you want he's sitting in a paddock at Galston because John just keeps his geldings and gives them a home on his 50 acres like he loves his horses and um, I said oh yeah I remember him he was the grey horse that raced at Adelaide he had two careers he got retired once and went back to, and went down to Adelaide and he said yeah you can have him if you want so I mean there a week later I'm out there organizing I had no I didn't know anyone in Sydney where do I keep a horse um <laughs> How do I have lessons? Where do I buy a saddle? I guess I go to Horseland. And um, from, you know, just one or two people I knew at work, um, I found a place. He's now in Duffy's Forest and he's been there since I got him and he is amazing. If he had been a horse that was um, difficult or like a a bit, if I had had my confidence knocked because I hadn't ridden in years, I wouldn't have pursued it and wouldn't be uh, what it is now, which is the owner of um, four saddles. 
I don't know how many bridles, <laughs> one horse, I think like 20-something rugs. It's, um, it's a, I'm a bit of a hoarder, but as you probably have already guessed. But yeah, it's, um, he's such a great horse and it's so fun. Like I go to comps with you. Um, I've met all these friends. In fact, one of the bridesmaids at my wedding I met through Gwyn. Um, so <laughs> it's, yeah, again, a whole new world, but I love him. He's, um, he's an amazing horse. Yeah, so I mean like you love the thoroughbred that much that you took one home. Exactly. I did. <laughs> and I um I had another one this year for the first time. Um Kurt Goldman gave him one called Safe gave me one called Safe Landing. Um, excuse me, which I'd asked about a few years ago at the races here when we did um we had a Millennium Day, I think, or the week of the Millennium race. Anyway, I ended up with Safe Landing and I've rehomed him um already to a nice family. He's so quiet again, like just the quietest horse. Um, I will rehome more, definitely. Like, I love the thoroughbred. I had one growing up as well, and they are definitely the best horse in terms of the ones I've ridden anyway. Um, <laughs> they do it all. They're jack of all trades. They are. Jamie, you've sort of came from, like, riding ponies to working in the racing industry and so many different roles to taking a thoroughbred home because you love them that much for retraining them. I think something that maybe puts off people from looking at our industry or coming in is is the welfare concerns that, that surround it. You know, how, how do you feel when you see those things being said or those people that have that sort of stigma about it? Um, overwhelmingly, it, the feeling would be frustration. I think because I know a lot of the sentiment is born out of um, what's happened with the Melbourne Cup the last few years and I can understand that I, I can because especially people who haven't maybe grown up in the country or haven't had anything to do with horses probably have um, it's like that disconnect with city life and the country and and animals so I can understand that they watch a race once a year and it, it, it doesn't paint a great picture but it's frustrating because I know I mean I love horses you love horses we've chosen to work in this industry it's not an easy industry to work in if you're working on the ground level in terms of a stable I mean they're not great hours um you work seven days a week doesn't matter if it's Christmas most of the time and you're not doing it because um you're money hungry or after the glamour it's because you love horses and if you didn't love it, you wouldn't get up at three in the morning and do it. And so I think that's the frustration. And I know there are not always great stories, but that's the case with a lot of industries or owning pets. Most people do the right thing. And so I feel that we don't, I don't think as an industry, we don't promote the good enough because we are in our bubble. When I go to a friend's, uh, like a friend's party or something, people ask what I do. Oh, I work um, at Inglis. What's Inglis? Oh, it's an auction house for horses. Oh, right. How does that work? Like, no idea. Like, all racing. I feel like no one outside of people who love sport really connects with it, yeah. which I did, as, and I still love it on that level as I did when I was 12. Um, I love the sport. So it's frustrating. I think, you know, we've got a lot, to, a lot of work to do in promoting the good part of it because I think the story gets lost in the, um, the, the love of the horse is what drives most of us to be involved. Gemma, I've loved talking to you. It's been so much fun. Just um, I can, I can just imagine you now <laughs> taping these races, and I just Isn't think it's, I think it's amazing. I, I do, and I think um, I think you've been a big gain to racing for someone who'd seen it from the outside and loved it so much that you were determined to be here in whatever role. And you, you filled so many roles: being track work, being on radio, you know, being on Racecourse Live, to now working for one of the biggest auctioneers, um, and seeing 
you know, the best bred horses that Australia has to offer come through here. And then you guys get to go and watch some race and, and hopefully sell them again let, let later on, you know. It's, it, you guys are a big part of their of their um, Life cycle. career. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great cool. place to work, Inglis. It really is, and I, I guess like I feel don't feel like I have to say it. I really feel it. It's so much fun. But, um, yeah, I mean, we get to look at horses, be around horses and go to a horse sale, which, as you know, wonderful atmosphere. That's our job. It's it's such a cool job. I can't think of a better word than cool right now, but it is, it's, I'm lucky to have a, a role like this and to work at a company like this. And, you know, life sometimes can be difficult. You can have bad days at work. I you know, am a stressful person, so sometimes <laughs> things feel worse than they are. And I have to remind myself that, you know, I started off as a 12-year-old girl in Yapoon with no connections at all to the industry, you know, moved to Brisbane, moved to Sydney on my own. I slept on the floor for 10 days on a um, on a blanket with my dad because I couldn't get a bed early enough organised. And here I am working at Inglis and count people in the industry as um, peers that I would have watched on television growing up. Many of them I did and thought, wow, you know, <laughs> here I am working with them. So I have to remind myself and pinch myself that that's where I've come from and um, I'm you know, the path wasn't always clear, especially when I left TV, but um, it was all meant to be. What would, you, um, what would you say to a young person coming into this industry and looking to do marketing or media or are the roles that you've held so far? Well, I think work experience, if you can do it, because you don't always, um, you might not get a role because you haven't had that experience on paper. Work experience was big for me. Um, Definitely just be very keen. If I mean, you have to be keen to want to do it. Be very um, willing to learn and listen. And I think, you know, you meet a lot of people and you don't know who those people might end up being in your life. They can end up being the next manager of you or someone who connects you to someone else. I think being, being a nice person, willing to chat to people, um, be confident. And, yeah, it's the overriding thing is to work hard and um, to listen and that's pretty much it. I feel like I've repeated myself, but you know what, you know what I'm yeah. saying. It's, it's wanting to do it enough to do the hard yards and put your hand up for things. Gemma, thank you so much for your insight. And your I, pathway. I don't know how insightful I was. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, giving people your, the insight to the pathway of it, of, of being and having a career in this industry. I, I really hope that someone takes some inspiration. I hope so. You. Sometimes things don't always work out, you know, like for me, but in terms of wanting what doing what I wanted to do but it, it there's always there are several paths to a goal there are and um you don't know what you're going to learn along the way and it's always um fruitful super Gemma thank you so much for joining us I've loved it <laughs> thanks Hayley <laughs>